Well, good morning. If you would, open your Bible to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Well, I'm so thankful to be back here with you again this morning. So thankful to be in God's Word together. I think I mentioned the last time that uh, I was before you that um, find humor in my Bible particularly uh, as it relates to the narrative we find in Numbers chapter 12. You'll remember in verse 3 of Numbers chapter 12 there is this statement. Now the man Moses was very humble more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Now that might not seem like a humorous statement, but when you understand who wrote it, who was inspired to write it, it begins to have a humorous ring. It's as if, well, Moses was the one who wrote it, and it's as if if he's saying, Moses, of all of those who walked on the face of the earth, was the most humble. Sincerely, Moses. Uh, It does cause us to chuckle a little bit, and it, it, it should. If Brian were to get up next Sunday morning and say, Brian, of all the people that have ever walked the face of the earth, is the most humble, we would all laugh at that. Brian would laugh at that. Um, It's not a common way of expressing humility. But we have to come to that text and to the text we're going to be in today and ask if it's a serious statement or not. Often I think we see the humor of this verse, and there is humor there, but there is also the reality that it is an inspired text, that God was the one ultimately prompting Moses to write those very words. And so what I want us to look at is ask Moses, uh, asking whether or not Moses is is serious here, uh, and and whether or not it, it can really be taken seriously that he was such a humble man. I think as we look at the text we're going to deal with again, and some of you are going to go, I thought we dealt with this last week, or two weeks ago. We did, but I wasn't completely satisfied, and there is this thing called pastoral prerogative, and I exercise it, especially uh, if I feel like we haven't gleaned what we, we need to from a particular uh, text. So with that in mind, would you stand as we do honor the reading of God's Word starting in verse 25 of John chapter 3. You find here John writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of Almighty God, the one who gives us breath at this very moment. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who, was with us, who, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear, witness, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I 
must decrease. These are God's words to you and I today. Beloved, would you pray with me? Father, we come into your presence this morning so thankful that you have reminded us here in your word that that Christ must increase in every area of our lives, but we must decrease. Father, would you show us the path to true humility? And Father, by your Spirit, would you make it a reality in our hearts more today than ever? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. John Selden, a British man once wrote, I think of the 17th century, humility is a virtue that all men preach, none practice, and yet everyone is content to hear. Now, I think that may be a little bit of an overstatement. It's not a universal reality, but it does capture uh, the broad reality of humanity. We are not humble people, the lot of us. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote, true humility is more like self-forgetfulness than false modesty. Humility is one of those things that the second we begin to talk about it, it leaves the room. The second that we aim directly at humility, we cease to be humble. Humility in and of itself as a direct object is often beset with self-preoccupation. And humanity is immersed in that reality. The second that we think, am I humble? And then we try to justify ourselves that we are. Well, we cease to be humble. We know, all know that humility is a, is a great Christian virtue, that it's important. None of us would stand and argue that we need to be more prideful. We all understand that there is an increasing need for each one of us to grow in, in humility because it guards us from stumbling. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so we all need the words that John speaks here in John chapter 3. I, I think there's an interesting, ironic indicator that in all of John chapter 3, verse 16 is the predominant verse that is memorized instead of verse 30. Doesn't that tell us something about the human condition? Uh, because I think verse 30 would get us to verse 16 in a hurry, but we are so prideful as people, and so it falls from our minds quickly. It's a convicting statement. So what we need to understand here as we come to this text of the setting is that John had grown in popularity. It was the forerunner, the witness to Jesus, and he had grown in popularity. Many people were going to, to see him. Many people were thronging to his, uh, to his heralding of, of a necessity for repentance and uh, uh, to prepare the way. And, and in Matthew chapter 3, we find these words, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the, Jordan, in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Talk about a, a revival. Talk about a, a move of the Lord from every walk of life, from Pharisees to Sadducees, tax collectors, rulers, those who were under uh, leadership, the rich, the poor. They were coming to John. We, we are even told that there was uh, questions that were rising because of John's popularity, uh, because of his status, that some thought that he was the reincarnation of one of the great prophets. 
This was an exceedingly popular man. And then we find in verse 26, And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan. Now there's something, there's an import in that statement that Jesus is second to John. Uh, he was just with you across the Jordan. To whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going with him. Uh, what, what is being said here is, John, do you not see what is happening? You're the man. You're popular. People know who you are. I mean, everyone in the entire uh, region is flocking to you. But now they're leaving you to go follow this Jesus. You, John, your, your star is seeking. What, what are you going to, to, to do? Your popularity is beginning to wane. You better get up there and make a speech. You better get up there and rile the crowd up again so that they would come away from Jesus and they would follow you. To these men, John's witness is a major thing. And for Jesus to come and to impose upon John is unthinkable to them. And they're in some sense encouraging John to rebuke Jesus and to rebuke those who would follow Him. But John doesn't fall to that temptation. We see in John true humility. There is an entire group of people in the midst of his popularity that are encouraging him to continue to make much of his own name. But John instead praises Christ. He rejoices in the reality of Christ's growing popularity. And so the question that we have to come with this morning is how does John do this? How does John live in humility? What John says reveals ultimately the ingredients of true humility before both God and man. And John gives us here in these few words a right understanding of how we are to live our lives both before the face of God and also before our fellow man for the glory of God in humility to His name. John says again in verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given given him from heaven you yourselves bear witness bear me witness that i said i am not the christ but i have been sent before him the one who has the bride is the bridegroom the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice therefore this joy of mine is now complete he must increase and i must decrease the first thing that John teaches us in understanding about how to rightly live humbly before the face of God and before men is that we must have an increasing awareness about the sovereignty of God. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. There are some people who when they are confronted with the doctrines of grace, those doctrines that teach us that Brian, you and I were saved by grace and mercy alone and nothing in us. We, we didn't decide. We didn't, it, it wasn't anything that we did that brought us to salvation. It was only, Dallas, by sheer mercy. It was only by the divine kindness of Almighty God that we find ourselves believing today. And, and some will come and they will say, 
Well, can I disagree with those doctrines and still be saved? Can I be in Christ and yet still not believe that God saved me by His grace alone? And the answer to that is nuanced. I think the answer at some level is yes. God is way more sovereign than to wait for you to get your theology in order before He saves you. But I promise you this, the more that you know of Him, the more that you will grow in wanting to know. And eventually, I think that, well, all of the redeemed come to know this truth that God is sovereign over their salvation. Now some struggle with it all throughout their human earthly existence and, and, and seek to, to give answers around uh, these particular doctrines. But ultimately, God saves... Not because we have our theological ducks. And boy, I am glad that when, when Jesus determined to redeem me, that He didn't look down and wait on me to have a PhD in soteriology to complete His plan of redemption. Because I would tell you, I think the church would be a pretty small group this morning. And it would be non-existent. Uh, it is only by grace that He saves. And so, yeah. There are people that are saved that don't understand those doctrines. That is a reality. You can be saved and not understand God's absolute sovereignty over your salvation. Bill, what you can't be is humble. You can be saved, but you can't be humble in the face of that salvation without understanding that God has saved you sovereignly. There will be some, and I'm not saying that you won't be somewhat humble. But you won't grow in the full flowering humility that we find here in John without acknowledging the reality that God saved you not because of you, but in spite of you. And not because you need to be glorified, but because He needs to increase and you must decrease. I want you to see the joy of this statement. Here is John's disciples tempting Him in their accusatory hearts. John, Jesus is taking these people from you. He's dragging them to Himself. And he, is, he, is, he is undermining your ministry and he is, he is dragging away all of those that you've assembled by your blood, sweat, and tears. through John, through your works, through your administration of the ministry God has given you, there is this contingent of people who now are being taken away unto Jesus. And John here acknowledges something absolutely radical and awesome, and it is simply this. No one's following Jesus unless God draws them to Christ. No one can follow this Jesus unless the sovereign God of all of the ages... Friends, this statement, if you're not careful, you'll read over it and you'll think that it's disconnected from what has just happened with Nicodemus in that direct discourse where Jesus interrupts Nicodemus and says, look, before you can even see the kingdom of heaven, you must be regenerated. And here John reaffirms that reality. There is nothing that you can receive. You cannot receive Christ unless, of course, God sovereignly gives Christ to you. Isn't that a joy? No one follows Jesus because of the witness ultimately. 
No one's going to stand before the throne of heaven and say, well, the only reason I have for believing is John the Baptist. Now, there will be those, and we'll get to this in a second, and I think we're all here who will praise God for the instrumentality of John's witness that God uses, but ultimately it is the sovereignty of God that has brought us to a saving relationship with Christ. And we are humbled before the throne to to tremble at the reality that God would save sinners like you and I and use us for His glory and for His kingdom. Beloved, do you have a proper view of God's sovereignty? Do you have this view that God saves, period? Do you have the view that a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven? Is that your testimony? Or do you continue to grumble against the doctrines of grace, against the reality that God is sovereign? You see, the the right view of this sovereignty is what we find in John. John was neither self-absorbed nor was he lazy. The accusation always comes that if you believe God saves unilaterally, sovereignly, divinely, by His decree, then ultimately that means we don't have any ministry left to do. John would say, now what? He believed both. John was the one who was the forerunner. He had been given, he had been sent, he is the sent one to witness to the glory of of who Christ is as, as the coming King. He had a ministry that he was giving everything in his life to. And yet he also could say a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He did not make his witness about himself. He didn't grandstand and, and tell cute little anecdotes all the time about himself. He also did not just throw up his hands and say, well, if God will be pleased to, to send people to Jesus, he will just do it without me. John knew that God had called him to a task and that he was merely an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. And so he would seek to be faithful under the sovereignty of God. John went on preaching, and he preached not tepidly, but with, with the joy of knowing Christ. Knowing who Christ was, that He was Christ the Messiah. And he was praying and pointing people continually to Jesus. John did what God had commanded and called him to do. And people started following Christ then. He did not exalt Himself, and He also didn't exalt the people. He didn't say, wow, look at these people, they're so smart. It's so wise of them to make this decision to follow Jesus. You have to get to modern Christian movements before you get that kind of foolish thinking. No, rather John, he knew that the fruit that he was seeing before his eyes, the reality, listen, there is a pivoting here, I think, and, and, and I'm not a mind reader, and we have to be careful about looking at our Bibles and reading things into it that aren't there. But I think what is happening here, in, in verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John, and they said to him, all are going to Jesus. They're alarmed. They're worried about this because they're fixated on the earthly priority of John's public persona. John is fixated on the glory of God and so when he hears 
All people are going to Jesus. He's rejoicing in his heart over the sovereignty of God that the only way that this destitute, spiritually wicked nation would ever turn to Jesus is because God had decreed it would be so. And so he is enthralled by that reality. He doesn't, he doesn't look back and say, boys, we need to make sure we're counting them. You can tell that the Southern Baptist Convention has not arisen in church history by this point because of that reality. We count everything, even empty chairs. John wasn't concerned with the numbers. John was concerned, concerned and consumed with the reality that his sovereign God had miraculously called him and equipped him and used him. And now, as the fruit was coming forward, he rejoiced knowing that that fruit did not come from his own hand, but only the hand of divine majesty. And if you think, well, this is, this is, you're trying to prove something that you're just proof texting here. You're just pointing to, ah, friends, I promise you I'm not. Jesus taught the same thing in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 25. And, and at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus taught that very reality. And do you remember when Jesus is interacting with, with, with Peter? And He says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, You are the, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. Do you remember Jesus' response of how that came to be? Why is Peter's confession correct? He didn't say, bravo, Peter. Very good job. I'm glad you've decided to follow me. No. This is what he said. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The Bible tells of this reality also in Acts. In Acts chapter 16, you'll remember Lydia, starting in verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The reason that she could receive the message was because there was a spiritual reality of God opening her heart to receive what was proclaimed. Friends, and this isn't a, a self-defense here, but many people I've heard coming away from, from sermons that are preached that were, have magnified my own heart in, in, in loving the Lord, in, in, in being encouraged to understand uh, doctrinal truths about the Lord, in, in killing my own sin, and all of the, the like. And, I, and I've heard you know, indictments. People walk away and they say, boy, I don't, I, that preaching is just ridiculous. Do you know what's happening often in moments like that is people are leveling before their friends their own indictment. That their heart is closed to the gospel. That they don't want the truth. That they Listen, friends. If there is one truth that I think needs to be ingrained into the church more than any other, it's that He must increase and we must decrease. Amen. 
And, and that in my starting in my own heart, I'm not, listen, wrestling with this text, it's, it's convicting. Uh, but the thing that imperils the church more than anything else is our own stinking pride. Thinking that God will move because of the name that's on the sign out there. Thinking that God will move because of our own devices. Thinking that God will move when we get out of our theological ducks in order. There are some people who genuinely believed if you just get the theological statement right and you boil or plate that and hand that out to everybody, everything's going to be okay. And Jesus doesn't work by theological statements. He works by divine majesty. We are the ones that need clarifying with statements. We have to be careful about how we deal with those things and, 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 and where we, we have to come is understanding that God is absolutely sovereign and that we must not, we must not meddle with the gospel. Friends, some, some of you have noticed that I'm rather energetic about this topic, and I have been for the majority of my ministry, the sovereignty of God. And people, you know, why is the, why is the sovereignty of God such an important thing for you? I, I will say this. I believe more in the sovereignty of God in 2023 than I did in 2016 when I became your pastor. I believe more in the doctrines of grace now than I once did. And primarily for this reason. That is the gospel. There's not another gospel. There's not a gospel where John comes in and says a person cannot receive many things unless it is given to him from heaven. There's not a gospel where John comes in and says people can't really understand unless you let them volitionally decide first and then everything will come. There is only the gospel that states simply this. Jesus saves. Period. That's the gospel. That's the glorious news. The reality that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but Christ has made us alive through the power of His Spirit. And only when He has regenerated our dead and dying hearts do we then turn to Him in repentance and faith. Our conversion comes as an overflow, an outworking of the sovereign hand of Almighty God. Jesus saves Sinners. And when we come to see that, and that all spiritual insight comes from the hand of God, it frees us from prideful comparisons. And what I'm saying this morning is this. Has God built a church with some people that do not believe in His sovereignty and their salvation? Yes. But He's not saved them apart from His sovereignty. It's all by His divine will. And for His glory. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't depend upon man. Salvation is of the Lord. Period. Friends, we should rejoice any time. And this is, this is the, the struggle. that Friends, when, when we pray, I hope we're not praying. Oh God, I pray that people would come to know the doctrines that I hold dear. Now, we can pray that, I think, downstream, but that shouldn't be our primary prayer. 
Our primary prayer should be that God would continue to work out His redemptive plan for His own glory, bringing sinners to being saints, turning people from their own love of this world to loving Jesus. We can teach them doctrine, but we need to be careful that we're not so insulated and so prideful. Friends, one of the things that breaks my heart is I think some of the best theology has been dashed across on the rocks of, of prideful humanity. People are turned away, and I'm certain that this is a reality in my own ministry, in my own life, that I've, I've, I've handled the Word in a way that would, would, would discourage others. God, help us not to be prideful. You know, one of the times I remember early in my ministry here, people, I, I thought, man, this is, this is, that we should rejoice in the sovereignty of God. This is something that, as my friends back home would say, should crank your truck. If this doesn't light your fire, your wood may be wet. But instead, people were angry. And I remember calling one of my friends and saying, James, I don't understand why they can't see this. It's not just one place. It's all over Scripture. What is the problem? What do I need to be doing more? And, and the whole conversation as I look back to it now is about me. Well, there's a lesson in pride. And James, a dear friend, said to me something that has tempered everything since. Not perfectly. But he said, Jay, do you believe that God is absolutely sovereign in a way that he, he is ultimately responsible for everything that you believe and everything you've received about his word? And I said, well, of course I believe that. And he said, so ultimately, ultimately you have to understand that you have received something that only God could give you. And you need to respond in humility to other people. Continue to try to convey the reality of the sovereignty of God. But don't do it with pride. Do with great humility that you've received these doctrines by the gracious hand of a loving Father. I thought, I really want to just be prideful and push it more. <laughs> we need to be patient and wait on the Lord. Can I tell you that when we stand before the Lord, Braxton, we're not going to say we've done great things. We're going to stand before Him and we are going to marvel at the theological cohesion of glory, of the fact that in heaven there are no disputes doctrinally, and we're going to know that one has brought that to pass. And it won't be us. It will be Him by His Spirit. So ultimately here, what we need to learn in that one verse, and I think I've given a fair amount of time, is that, that God is sovereign and that humbled John. Secondly, John was self-aware. John knew himself and, and what God had called him to, to do. You yourselves bear me witness, he said, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He, he knew his calling. He knew who he was in the schema of redemption. And what my question for you here today is, friend, do you understand your place and what God has called you to? Do you understand that you are also called to bear witness to the salvation that God has given you by His divine kindness? I 
This is what Jesus taught us ultimately. John understood that he couldn't do anything apart from the sovereign hand of God. He, he knew that he was to be an instrument, a witness, but this reality was not detached from the reality that God was sovereignly using him in his divine plan. You can do nothing apart from the Lord. And and Jesus teaches us that in John 15, verse 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It is only under the sovereign hand of God that we ever are used rightly as witnesses for him. There's an interesting paradox of this reality in that if a man is not humble, if a man doesn't receive this testimony, when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, if a man or a woman will not receive that as true, what will come out of his life or her life in the final analysis on the day of judgment? You know what it will be? Nothing. If you will not surrender to the truth that apart from Christ, you can do nothing, Ultimately, the fruit of your life will be nothing before Him. But when you receive this testimony that I am infinitesimal in comparison, I am nothing and I can accomplish nothing apart from His sovereign hand, when you understand that truth, then God uses you mightily and can do wonderful things with your life for His glory. Romans chapter. 12, you'll remember as as being that sweeping chapter where uh, Paul starts out by encouraging us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is our reasonable service, our spiritual worship. But then he goes on to say, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Do you see the reality of a self-awareness there under the sovereignty of God in such a way that our lives would be laid down for the furtherance of the glory of God? And here what we need to understand about this sober judgment, the Greek words, and I'll try not to get too deep in this, the Greek word phreneo here is translated to the word think in Verse 3, for by the grace uh, uh, given to me, I say to every one of you not to think, not to phreneo of himself more highly than he ought to think, to phreneo, but to phreneo, to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure that faith, that, that God, of faith that God has assigned. Uh, phreneo in, in its context really means the, the status of your mind. To think with a sober, uh, a right judgment about yourself. Uh, that This is an individual. The, the one that thinks rightly is one who, when we write wills, we write, I, J. Clatworthy, being of sound mind. There's always going to be somebody to argue that. But, but that's the import of phreneo, that, that we are uh, thinking with a level head, with a right understanding of who we are. We're not thinking too high. We're not thinking too low. We have a sober assessment of ourselves. It's almost, we could translate it this way, for I say, through the grace given unto me, 
to every Christian among you, do not indulge in an insane judgment of yourself, but rather be sane about, uh, about it so as to estimate uh, the, that the estimate of yourself is sound. Don't, don't be crazy. Don't be out of your mind, but think with a sober judgment. Now, here's the trick to this verse. We're all beset with pride, and this is a really hard thing to do. Because there are two ditches on either side of a phreneo type of frame of mind, a right thinking. In one ditch is arrogance and pridefulness. In the other ditch is despairing and thinking less than your assigned task and your call before the Lord. And down the middle is sober judgment about who you are before the Lord for the glory of the Lord. And some of you might ask, well, Pastor, which one of those do you struggle with most? And my answer to that would be, well, yes. Both of them. On any given Sunday, Sarah could give you a testimony about my arrogance, and others in this room could give you a testimony about my despondency and despair. Uh, all of that comes rightly in this context. We only think, we only have the right estimate of ourselves. Uh, we only, you know, there's an there's a English word, frenetic, that, that we're, we're agitated, we're anxious, we're frenetic in our thinking. It's interesting because that's kind of the opposite of what Paul is pointing at here. The only sober assessment that we can give of ourselves is not to look at ourselves alone, but only to look at ourselves in Christ. It's only when we understand our identity in Him that we have this phreneo, this sound mind about what we've been called to do. And it's the only point at which we are living in true humility because to be honest with you, both arrogance and despair are both forms of pride. They're consumed with who we are outside of Christ. They forget Christ all together. And so there's this reality of the sovereignty of God. There's also a self-awareness that we can do nothing apart from the Lord and that it's only in the Lord that we have a right assessment of who we are, that we are dearly beloved and that we're seated at, uh, with Him in heavenly places and, and that all of the promises are yes and amen for those of us who are in Christ. And, and then we have a right self-awareness. And then in verse 29 we see that John had a mindset that Christ was preeminent in all things. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Again, John fixes his eyes on Christ. John says, this isn't my wedding. This, I am not the point of this, friends. Boy, that is a freeing reality in life when you can finally come to, the, to, to, to your wrestling with the universe and say, I am not the point of the universe. I am not the central character in this story. There are even modes of ministry today where people are, are taught to frame all of their understanding of what God's been doing around them. And I'm going, that's madness. The, good of the, 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 the joy of the Gospel is that our story is intertwined with His story. And that ultimately, we are, not the primary, uh, uh, we, we are not the primary person in the story. Jesus is. Jesus is the one that ultimately, everything we've talked about this, that's what John chapter 1 is about. All of the cosmos was not created so that you would be comfortable. And Carrier Corporation is really happy about that. They make millions of dollars a year, billions 
on making it more comfortable for you because we all like our comfort. But God did not design this planet primarily for your comfort. He designed it that He would show forth His glory in creation and His goodness in being the Redeemer. He is at the center of this story. And John understood that reality that no matter what happened in his life, this planet is still being used under the sovereign hand of God. And every individual is filling their rightful purpose that Christ would receive glory. Our function here is merely to serve. John knew my, my role in this wedding is merely to appoint the bride of Christ to the groom, to Christ Himself. And friends, that's the reality. That is true of every member of the body of Christ. We are still, if you're here this morning and you're breathing air, you don't have to wonder. Books have been filled. Pages, lots of ink spilled over what is my purpose in life? To witness to the glory of God if you are in Christ Jesus. That's it. And you don't have to put a, a comma, but what about? No, no. That what about? That thing in your life that you think is, is dragging you away from being a faithful witness, that's the very thing. That whatever it is, good or bad, that in spite of who you are, you can be used as an instrument pointing the way home to the Redeemer. Because the story is about Him. Isn't that freeing? And there are parts of the story. I just want to say this because I'm a counselor and things I know how they can be taken to... There are parts of your story that you will not know this side of heaven. How does this fit? How does this bring Christ glory? I don't know, but he does and will know, maybe. What we will know is that he's glorious and it's better than the stuff that's happened. Right? I think often our our minds slip into pride and, and one of the greatest cures for pride in my own life as I, I, I feel it and I can sense it and I know is, is simply found in Matthew 14 and you'll remember this narrative Jesus calls Peter to walk on the water the Bible records in Matthew and Peter answered him Lord if it is you command me to come to you on the water and he said to him come so Peter came out to the boat and walked on water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind and he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. I just think about the reality that pride creeps into our minds so often when we take our eyes off Jesus and we put them on the circumstances of this life. And, and there's an interesting, I think, interplay of what the reality here. That even as Peter starts to sink beneath the waves, that Peter is not saved because he kept his eyes on Jesus. Peter's saved because Jesus reached out and saved him. The sovereignty of God yet again. The, the only reason why we can do anything you know, we're going to stand, we're, we're gonna, I think we're going to get to talk to Peter one day, and we're going to, you know, what was it like to walk on water? Nobody's going to go up to him and say, man, that was an amazing thing that you did. And you did that, that was the one thing that was the, the exception to what, what Jesus says in John chapter 15, that apart from me you can do nothing. Peter's go, Peter would be like, what? No, no, it, it was only because of him. 
And it was only because of His grace and His kindness. Friends, when we find ourselves, you know the interesting thing about humble people is they don't know they're humble. They just know they love Jesus. And the more they love Jesus, the more they grow in humility. They're not called to, boy, look at me, I'm a fine specimen of keeping my eyes on Jesus. I know I'm not a fine specimen of keeping my eyes on Jesus, but what I'm thankful for is knowing that he keeps his eyes on me and that he is mighty to save and that he holds me in his hand. You see, A.W. Pink said, humility is not the product of direct cultivation, but rather it is a byproduct. The more I try to be humble, the less I shall attain unto humility. But if I am truly occupied with the one who is meek and lowly of heart, if I am constantly beholding his glory in a mirror in the mirror of God's Word, then I will be changed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. Have you experienced that joy? That reality of looking unto Jesus, marveling at who He is, and finding yourself more and more dissatisfied in and of yourself, but more joyful in knowing that you are in Him and you are received as one of His beloved children. But friends, what John knew was that God was sovereign, that, that He could only have a right assessment of Himself because of His calling and, and, and because of who He uh, was in Christ, and also that Christ was preeminent in all things. He is the center point of the story. And then in verse, two more things. In verse 29, we see that John had a joy uh, for others. When he talks about this reality of, of he is the, the, the groomsman, not the groom, and so he is there merely to point people to Jesus, John found his joy not in people coming to Him, but in people going to Jesus. And so if we are going to really walk in humility, we have to find our joy not in people liking our uh, views or, uh, or us. Or it, it's not about us. It's about finding joy in watching people come by the sovereign hand of God to believe on the person and the work of Christ. It, it ultimately... It is our great joy to see sinners come home. And friends, I'm certain of this reality that, that all of us in this room today without exception have, had, have tried to find joy in things outside of the redemptive work of Christ. We've all tried to find our... You know, I, I remember being a 20-year-old man. My wife was expecting that for the first time and I had in my mind this perfect little family and I would have my joy in this family. Now, what the Lord has given me is a great joy in an earthly sense, and I'm very thankful for my children, but I've had to learn over the years that my ultimate joy cannot be in my children because it will crush them. You know, you're 16 years old and you get your first car and you're going to be the coolest guy in the block. Even though that car has been totaled twice and it's the rattiest thing on the face of the planet, you know, we're going to find joy in this vehicle. And it takes a couple of years before... You don't have that car anymore. Uh, materialism creeps in. Or, or we think in our own accomplishments that we will find joy and we struggle and our, our family sacrifice so that we can go through this program or that program and we make achievements and we get on the other side of that achievement and we find that it, it was formative and helpful, but that ultimately our joy can only be in Christ. 
And, and what I think John understood was that he had come to be a man who was not enthralled with the things of this, this earth. This earth was merely a means to an end, and that end was the glory of Christ. And so he saw the coming of people. I'm telling you, I just I wish I would have been standing there when the disciples frenetically, in their prideful minds, ran up to John and said, John, they're all following Jesus. I know that the well of his heart was so joyful at the reality that this had come to pass. It wasn't because of John. It was through John. He was an instrument. It was because of the sovereignty of God. And John found joy in the reality that people were going to Jesus. Because John knew there is only one way for man to be reconciled to a holy God. And it's through this Jesus. So he had joy in the reality of, of pushing others to Christ. And, and finally, John was consumed, verse 30, with a desire for the glory of Christ to permeate the earth. He must increase and I must decrease. John knew that no matter what happened in his life, as he stayed his mind on Christ, it would turn out for his joy eternally and for Christ's glory. John was not consumed with self-preservation. John was consumed with bringing glory to Christ. In his mind, and this is the statement of John, he must increase, I must decrease. And there are some people in their carnal minds that will hear that statement and they'll think that what John is saying is Christ will get all the glory and John will have no joy. That's not what's being said. As Christ is exalted, as He has brought glory, John's joy goes with Him. He rejoices in the reality. But John doesn't have to hold on to John. John doesn't have to protect John's reputation, his, his ministry, or even his life. You'll remember in Mark chapter 6, Herod had John summoned. John was a man that was so popular that here later he was summoned he was brought by force before Herod. I mean, if you're brought before the king, you're somebody that has notoriety and popularity. Herod wanted to hear what John had to say. And so John proclaims truths to Herod, and Herod is he likes it until he likes what John has to say. There's something new, there's something fresh. But then John, well, John calls out Herod. Because he's sleeping with his sister-in-law. John gives to Herod the same message that John gave to the multitudes, and that is repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that made his sister-in-law, Herod's sister-in-law, his mistress, very angry. And so you remember what happened. It's why we have the slide up here. It's not, this isn't just a, like a Halloween slide. That's John's in, in, in classical uh, Renaissance art. John's head is always on a plate to the glory of God. Because this woman said, I want his head on a plate. Why? The world, friends, they love to hear of the benefits of God. They will, they will flock to arenas, and I've seen it, and, and hear of the promises of heaven and all of those things. But when you start proclaiming a message of repent and believe, somebody's head's going to be put on a platter. And here's what John believed. That's okay. That's fine. Because ultimately, as long as Christ increases, my joy increases. And the things of this earth have grown strangely dim. And all I care about is that Christ's banner is exalted. And I, I got to hear that particular text of standing before Herod. And, and if you think about it, some people would say, wow, 
John was pretty prideful to stand before the king and tell him to repent. No, John was absolutely humble. He knew God was sovereign. He, he understood that he was an instrument called to witness to God. He understood ultimately that his message could not change. And his joy was in seeing people turn. Do you think, I believe that when John called out Herod's sin, it was not in the pride and egotism of the angry, you know, uh, prideful Christendom. I think John was literally looking just at another man. Not at Herod the king, but as an image bearer of God. And he was calling him to repent and believe because he knew Herod can have the whole world. He can have his, his sister-in-law. But unless he has Jesus, he has nothing. And there would be no greater joy than seeing Herod come to saving faith. So he proclaimed the gospel. And it cost him his head. And I promise you, on the other side of glory, John will not have regretted what he did in standing before the king. I got to hear this particular text preached 2,000 years later. We never understand the implications of living faithfully before God and humbly before the Lord. And I'm sure that John had no idea that in just witnessing to this one king that multitudes of other people would be encouraged to stand in the face of their own government and speak the truth about the gospel in Christ. I, I, I sat with Robbie in 2000, I think it was 19, three blocks east of the United States Supreme Court building in a church service and heard uh, a brother pastor who I love dearly preach this particular text to a bunch of staffers who work on Capitol Hill and he encouraged them to stand on the gospel and if they have to lose their jobs, allow their head to be put on a platter as long as they with humility before the Lord herald the gospel into this dead and dying culture. John didn't understand that that was going to be a reality, but as he decreased, Christ increases. And God sovereignly uses our witness in ways that we would never expect. John could stand before anyone because the glory of Christ had consumed him. He had a joy in seeing others come to Jesus. And I believe with all of my heart, beloved, the thing that is making the church in our day and age weak is primarily that we lack a joy in seeing sinners come to repentant faith. We lack the zeal, and, and we need to be praying and asking that God would give us that joy for others. Christ was uh, also above everything, preeminent in John's mind. He, John understood who he was, and John knew that, that, that God was sovereign. And so John could stand before kings, he could stand before multitudes, and he could act with humility seeking to decrease in his own stature, but bring glory to the living God. And this is why Moses could say with confidence and humility this one line in Numbers chapter 12. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all of the people who were on the face of the earth. It has more of a gravitas now than it did when we started an hour ago, doesn't it? That Moses is not here making a punchline. Moses is is saying something that was true. The man Moses was very meek, more than all the people on the face of the earth. Why? Because of something that had happened to Moses prior, and that was that he stood before the living God and he spoke with him. Because he knew who God was. John Trapp said, Moses had more glory by his veil than by his face. The fact that Moses was able to meet face to face with God 
caused him to be a deeply humble person. Now, I doubt that, that the people that he ministered to, in fact, the context of that particular verse tells us that those closest to him didn't think he was humble at times. If you'll remember, the setting was not a setting of Moses being triumphant. The setting was, in fact, one of the most heart-wrenching instances of insurrection in all of Scripture. You'll remember that Aaron and Miriam are Moses' brother and sister. And here is what Numbers chapter 12 describes of this humble man Moses who had gone before the face of God and so he spoke the Word of God and he sought to love according to what God had, had brought forth. But as time went on, the reality of human depravity comes to bear and the Bible records Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman and they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has He not spoken through us also? Now we live in a day and age, beloved, and I could preach an entire sermon on the sufficiency of, uh, of the Word of God, but we live in a day and age where the culture, the Christian culture is asking this question. Has God only spoken through the apostles and prophets? Is this Bible the only place that we can hear the voice of God? I'm going to make a quick argument. Yes, this is the only place that we hear the sufficient Word of the living God. Now, I think he impresses things upon our hearts, but they're all in accordance with this word. And the Lord heard it. The Lord heard this indictment from Miriam and Aaron. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people that were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called to Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I am the Lord. I, the Lord, make myself known to them in a vision. I speak with them in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then? Were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Moses was consumed by the glory of Christ, by having joy and watching the nation come to the living God, by acknowledging that God was above all, by being self-aware of who He was in His own humanity, and by knowing that God was sovereign all over all things. And so you know what Moses didn't do? He didn't have to defend himself. He didn't have to... When people came against him, Moses knew all he needed to do was stand in humility, rejoicing in the sovereignty of God, and whatever happened would turn out for the glory of the Lord and for His joy. He did not open his mouth because he knew that God would vindicate him in every way that was reasonable. One of my favorite stories from, from church history, and I think we have a little one in this room that's named after John Knox, and it makes me giddy to know that. Uh, but John Knox lived, you'll remember, at the time of Queen Bloody Mary's reign. The woman, not the drink. Um, you got to get that clear in these days. Um, and John Knox was uh, the, her chaplain. And Mary was not, there's a reason why she was called Bloody Mary. She was not a humble woman. She was not given to long 
thought and contemplation on her actions. She wielded the sword of state and she did it swiftly and often capriciously. And so if she was angry and you were in the room, your head might be on a plate. Um, and John, acting, John Knox acting as a, a, a chaplain in her court was going to see her one day and her servants came out and met him and said, John, don't go in there. She's in one of her moods. And John's response to that was, why should I be afraid of a queen when I have just spent four hours on my knees before God? There's a recipe for humility. If you want to know practically where to start in growing in humility, in the church being strengthened to being used as an instrument for witnessing, it's not by coming up with a better theological argument. It's by being on your knees before the king. It's why James tells us in chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. And if we need a full flowering picture of what humility looks like, it's not in Moses. He was kind of angry at times. It's not in John, although I think he gives us a wonderful picture under the Spirit of God here. Ultimately, the, the, the image of humility is found in the face of Christ. And in Isaiah 53, verse 7, we hear these words of our Redeemer. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet, we, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He went to the cross accepting the reality of what God had sent him to do in humility. And through his work and his work alone, we have salvation. I think there are other images throughout church history. I, I was just thinking throughout the week, William Carey, you'll remember, he said as he was dying, when I am gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. I desire that Christ alone be magnified. I think Mr. Carey may have read verse 30 of John chapter 3. Or Andrew Fuller, who understood that the way we go about doing things, beloved, the way that we do ministry here, our intent of heart matters just as much as the things that we do. We can, we can start a thousand ministries, but if the glory of Christ is not the aim of what we do, it's for nothing. Andrew Fuller said, whether you sing or you pray or hear or preach or feed the poor or till the soil, if self be the object and Christ be disregarded, all is sin. Friends, I just in closing, I want you to believe with me that what we need in this place, and, and you have to hear, does anybody in this place believe that I don't desire to have theological accuracy? Now, I, I know that I don't. I need to continue to grow. But I, I want us to have doctrinal uh, 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 fidelity. I, I want us to grow in what we believe. But the thing that we need more than anything is not better creeds. It's not more programs. It's not bigger buildings. It's not greater laws in our community. It's not more amusing music. Brian, you're off the hook. We simply need to be humbled before the living God, knowing that He saved us by His sovereign hand alone and for His own glory. And if that one thing will rapture our hearts every day that we live by grace, I promise you, 
There will be fruit. One day, someone will say, there's a bunch of people coming to Jesus over at Providence Baptist Church. And in our hearts on that day, we won't go, man, we've done good. We will, with John, say, he continues, we, we want to, he needs to increase, but we must decrease. We will rejoice in the sovereign hand of Almighty God. So let us be enthralled with this Jesus, the one who truly saves. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you knowing that we are prideful people. We know that we have ambitions, and some of them hide themselves as being godly ambitions. Some of them are good ambitions. But Father, anything that we do apart from you is nothing. And so I pray, Father, that we would be a people of prayer, that we would be a people committed to submitting everything we do to your fatherly hand, knowing that you are sovereign, we are mere instruments. Father, might we find our joy in you this morning and that alone, that if our, our very lives were taken, we would still have joy knowing that you will vindicate us. And that you will bring glory to your name. Father, if there's one here today that is yet to turn to you in repentance and faith, I pray that you would, you would impress upon their heart how they love the things of this life, how their sin is consuming them. And, and, and Father, how, how the things of this earth will one day be taken away. I pray, Father, that they would increasingly find the things of this earth dissatisfying that they would turn in repentance and faith to you. I pray that you would do the work of regeneration, not for our glory, but for yours. And Father, would you, through the means that only you and your wisdom know, would you make us a humble people? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would stand, we're going to sing, There my God ordains is right.